be seated. Well, as we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning, I was reminded that uh, Bill Langwell went to be with the Lord this last week. Bill and Frankie have uh, been overseeing the Lord's Supper here for over 20 years. And uh, this is uh, the first Sunday uh, that we had the Lord's Supper that Bill's not here with us. He went to be with the Lord on April 26th. But Frankie's here this morning and uh, taking care of that for us. So uh, we're deeply grateful for them, and we just uh, want our love to be expressed to them. And I, I want her to know that Bill will never be forgotten in my heart for all that he's done here for our church and for our Lord. And we're so grateful he's with the Lord today. Well, it's, it's three more weeks before Cheryl and I leave on a sabbatical for this summer that the church has graciously given to us. Uh, for 25 years of ministry here. Uh, but this morning I want to bring a message uh, kind of completing what we started a couple weeks ago in John's Gospel. If you'll turn to John chapter 4 with me, I want us to look at John chapter 4 verses 46 to 54, a, a message about faith, a message about faith for us. John chapter 4 and verse, verses 46 to 54. Let me read these verses for us. And he came therefore again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said therefore to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour that in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed with his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea uh, into Galilee. So reads uh, God's inspired word. It's a story in a book by, called True North by uh, Gary Enrig. It's a story I'm sure that many of you remember from back in 1999. He, he writes this. He says, The news story seemed bizarre. Two Air Force F-15 jets were shadowing a Learjet as it flew steadily north across the heart of the United States. Flight controllers had been unable to make contact with the plane, and the pilots of the military jets reported the windows of the plane were frosted over and there was no sign of life. Six people, including the two pilots and the reigning champion of the U.S. Open Golf Championship, Payne Stewart, were, Payne Stewart, were known to be on board. The saga played out over four hours. Finally, the ghost flight came to a tragic end when the plane ran out of gas over South Dakota and spiraled into the ground at a speed estimated at more than 600 miles an hour, blowing a huge crater in the ground. There were no survivors. Payne Stewart had left that Monday morning, October 25, 1999, intending to fly to Dallas for some golf course design business discussions. The jet flown by an Air Force veteran took off at 9.19 a.m. with a flight plan designed to take it uh, to Florida and then uh, west to, toward Dallas. But the plane never made the turn west. It kept flying northwest, and air traffic controllers reported they'd lost contact 14 minutes into the flight. The plane kept going higher and higher, reaching an altitude of more than 50,000 feet. 
When all attempts to reach the pilots were unsuccessful, military jets scrambled to the wing of the plane and even to the, 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 the tip of the wing of the Learjet to see if they could rouse the pilots. One of the military pilots later said, it's a very helpless feeling to pull up alongside another aircraft and realize that people inside that aircraft are potentially unconscious or in some other way incapacitated. There's nothing I can do from my aircraft, even though I'm just 150 feet away. When there was no response, experts diagnosed a decompression problem. A sudden loss of pressure during the plane's climb after takeoff had caused all six people to pass out. Long before the plane had crashed, everyone was unconscious and probably dead from lack of oxygen. For four hours, an expensive, high-performance jet was assisted by the most advanced help from air traffic controllers and military pilots. The plane had state-of-the-art guidance systems and access to the finest navigational direction. Everything necessary to safely reach the intended destination was present, except oxygen. But as the results show, nothing else matters if oxygen is missing. And then he says this, there's a spiritual counterpoint to this. The life of faith is the only life that pleases God. And nothing else matters if faith is missing. No matter how many navigational devices may be present in our lives, if we lack faith, we lack the indispensable. And that's true, isn't it? Faith is the one thing that we cannot survive spiritually uh, without it. It's spiritually indispensable to us. What oxygen is to the body, faith is to the soul. And the writer to the Hebrews says it succinctly, without faith it is impossible uh, to please God. So faith is the currency of heaven. And if you want to do business in heaven, you have to have faith because that is the only currency that's accepted there. Someone said it like this, faith is the means by which Christians do business beyond time and space and bring to pass otherwise unrealizable hopes. This morning what I want us to do, each of us to do, is examine our own faith in the Lord by looking at this second sign of Jesus here in John's Gospel. I've titled this message this morning, Believing is Seeing. And it's clear in this passage that the context is about faith. Let me just show you this. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Look back at verse 39 of chapter 4. Jesus is in the area of Samaria. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. Look down at verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. Verse 42. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And then we come down to our text, and we see in uh, verse 50, uh, the, or verse 48, the word believe. The word 50, verse 50, the word believed. And down in verse 53, the word believed. You see in a pattern here? It's about faith, right? It's all about uh, believing. That's the whole context of this passage. But more specifically, this passage is about how faith grows and develops. Because we see even with the Samaritans in the previous context, and certainly with this nobleman, how his faith grows and develops. So this man teaches us how faith develops or how it grows in the human heart. He illustrates that for us. Now when we come to our miracle here this morning, Jesus is back in Cana. 
Now remember in chapter 2, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus turning the water to wine um, in Cana of Galilee. And he's back there now, and what you see here in this section is what's called an inclusio, or kind of bookends. You have Cana over here, and then you have Cana here, and everything in between is kind of included between these bookends. And it's interesting, I've got it in your outline there for you, you can see this, but there's some interesting comparisons between the miracle of the water to wine and the healing the nobleman's son. Uh, they're both in Cana. Uh, the water to wine was the third day. In this miracle, it says after two days. In uh, John 2, Jesus turns the water to wine in response to a mother's request. Here he heals this boy in response to a father's request. Um, in uh, the water-to-wine miracle, there was initial, an initial rebuke by Jesus of Mary. Here you have an initial rebuke by Jesus to this nobleman. Um, you have a, a miracle in the water-to-wine, a miracle of time. Jesus compresses all the time it takes for grapes to grow and be harvested and, and fermented and all of that. He compresses that all into a, a split second of time, whereas this miracle of this nobleman's son is a miracle of distance. Um, in, in the miracle at the water to wine, the servants possess unique knowledge. The same way here in this miracle, the servants possess unique, unique knowledge. Um, some who see the sign believe when Jesus turns water to wine. It's the same thing here. And when the waters turn to wine, it's at a wedding, a place of joy and festivity. This is involving a sickness, which is a time of sorrow and desperation. So it's this inclusio from Cana to Cana. It's Jesus' first sign, his second sign. Now, it says down here in verse 54, this is the second sign Jesus performed when he'd come out of Judea and the Galilee. Now, we know this isn't the second miracle that Jesus did, because back in chapter 2, it says that people were, were following after him because of the miracles or the signs he was doing when he was in Judea. But now he's back up north in Galilee, and this is the second sign that he performs there. And this is the, only the first two in John are numbered, the one at Cana and this one, the first sign, the second sign. Now, we said a couple weeks ago, a sign is a miracle with a message. It's a miracle with a meaning. The miracle's important. Certainly, it's real, it's literal, it actually happened. But it points beyond that to something even greater. And the, the message in this miracle for us is about the growth of faith. It's an illustration of how faith grows. And look, all of us here, I believe all of us here, probably need this. I'm sure every one of us here feel many, many times as if our faith is way too weak. If you don't feel that way, then you can ignore what I'm talking about this morning, but I think this will probably uh, hit home with most of us. I'm often humbled and ashamed uh, by the weakness of my faith, and I'm sure many of you are as well. It's a story I heard about a, a pastor he brought a, a, a friend was at his church, and he took him around and was showing him all the, the various rooms in the church and giving him a tour of that. And the man asked him, he said, well, what's the largest room in your church? And the pastor said, the largest room in our church is room for improvement. And I like that. That's true of a church, right? There's always room for improvement, but it's true in our lives as well. It's especially true of our faith. There's always a room for improvement. As we face the troubles and the trials of life, all of, it, all of us, if we're honest, we are very quick to distrust the Lord and to give in to fear and to doubt and to worry. Uh, John Calvin was honest when he said this, Consider how much concealed distrust there is in us 
or at least how small and limited our faith is. And I think we all feel that way this morning. We can relate to that. So I want to look at the growth of this man's faith, its stages, if you will, and learn how faith can blossom and how it can increase in your life and in my life so that we can please God. As you can see in your outline there this morning, we see four stages of faith here. This man's faith begins with what we might call crisis faith. Now notice it says, Now he came therefore to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. Again, it's relating it back to the first sign. And there was a certain royal official. Now that word there, royal official, literally means a king's man. He was a king's man. He, he worked for uh, the ruler there, probably Herod Antipas. Um, I think the King James calls him a nobleman. Uh, but we know that this man has power and authority. Uh, we're going to read down later in the passage, he has several slaves. So he certainly is a powerful, wealthy man. And you think about this as a powerful, wealthy man, probably a fairly young man because his child here, his son, is probably a young boy. Um, he's used to people coming to him. He's used to people coming to him to solve their problems. But now this man who's wealthy and powerful, he has to come uh, to Jesus. He's the one who's used to having the solutions for other people. But he's hit a crisis now in his life where he is at the end of his rope. He's watching his young son dying. If you look at verse 47, it says his son was at the point of death. In verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's watching the life of his son, his young son, slowly ebb away. Watching his young boy just slowly kind of melt into the sheets, if you will. As I read this passage this week, um, you know, we can kind of read over these things, but it ought to shake every one of us as we read this. Because every parent's deepest fear is that somehow by accident or illness or some other means, our children will be taken from us. Um, having to bury one of our children is a tragedy that every one of us silently pray that we will never have to endure. There's nothing more unnatural uh, than that. And the desperation of this man turns this man into a beggar. In verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him. It doesn't mean he asked him one time. The way it's there in the Greek, he asked him over and over. And you could translate the word there, he was begging him. He found Jesus and he kept begging him over and over again, Jesus, will you come down to, to Capernaum with me and will you heal my son because he's at the point of death? I like what one writer said I read this week. He, he calls this nobleman a courtier. And he says, here we have a courtier who's coming to a carpenter. I mean, this man is desperate. You know, all pretense gets thrown off when you're desperate, doesn't it? I read this quote by Chuck Swindoll this week. It's in his commentary on Mark. He says, Nothing can bring parents to their knees faster than a critically ill child. When the condition lingers and grows more intense, feelings of helplessness and desperation drive them to consider almost anything. We ignore our own prejudices as we seek advice from complete strangers. We forget our pride and dignity as we search for anything that will bring relief to our little one. We spend any amount of money necessary. We travel any distance. We sacrifice any possession for the hope of a cure. Our desperation knows no bounds. That's true. Every one of us know that in our hearts and lives. And some of you, some of you have experienced that in a deep way. You know, there's another lesson for us here we all need to, to be cognizant, 
cognizant of, and that is no person is immune from tragedy and trouble no matter how much money you have. We often look at rich people and they say, well, those, those rich people, they don't have problems like everyone else. There's some problems that riches can temporarily shield you from, but no amount of money can ward off tragedy and trouble in life. Death was knocking at the house of this, uh, the, the, the door of this rich man's house. There was nothing he could do to stave it off. Years ago, when uh, Charles Lindbergh's son was kidnapped, the whole nation knew about it. And of course, he was a wealthy man because of his exploits. Someone said this, just a common man, he's made this comment, Lindbergh's worth $6 million, and he would give every cent of it to have his son back. It's true, isn't it? I mean, you know, money can't ward off tragedy and trouble. Uh, Someone said it like this, there are many things money cannot buy. Money can buy a king-size bed, it can't buy sleep. It can buy a great house, but it can't buy a home. Money can buy a companion, but it can't buy a close friend. Money can buy books, but it can't buy brains. Money can buy a church building, but it cannot buy entrance into heaven. As our text suggests, money cannot buy life and health. Wealth cannot buy the life of a loved one. This nobleman was in agony. Nothing could relieve him. Nothing. The end appears to be inevitable. So the crisis with his son makes this man desperate. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but many, many people come to Jesus Christ because of a crisis in their life. In fact, if we had the opportunity this morning to go around here and interview every person here, I would say that most of us here probably initially came to Jesus because of some crisis in our life. We call this crisis faith, or you could call it foxhole faith, or emergency room faith, or a lot of different synonyms for this. But faith almost always begins in a crisis. And for this nobleman, his faith is born of a crisis. And you may be facing a crisis in your life this morning, in your marriage, maybe in your family, maybe with one of your children. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe there's something in your work or your business that's troubling you. Or maybe just something in your emotions that you just can't get a handle on. Uh, that's causing you to face a crisis in your life. When all the props are kind of kicked out from underneath you in your life. Now let me just say this as lovingly as I can this morning. That may be a good thing in your life if it brings you to Jesus. The Lord allows these crises to come in our lives to kind of kick the props out and to make us desperate because we come to Him. Because crisis faith is usually a very focused faith. It's desperate. It usually just has one request, one main desire. And I love it because with this man, Jesus comes and meets him at his point of crisis. But He wants this man's faith to grow and He wants it to increase. And again, how many of us here this morning came to faith in the Lord initially due to a crisis in our lives that brought us to our knees? Thank God, really, think about this. Thank God for graciously allowing crises to come into our lives to draw us to Him and to bring us to Him and not to leave us out there on our own. Now, Jesus' answer to this, man, think about this. This guy's begging Jesus over and over again, come down to Capernaum with me and heal my son. And look at Jesus' answer in verse 48. I mean, you talk about throwing cold water in the guy's face. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Man, that sounds kind of like a harsh answer. Well, one thing that that softens this a bit, the word you there is plural. When he says, unless you see signs and wonders, he's talking about the people up there in Galilee. 
The problem with the people in Galilee is they'd become sign seekers. Uh, they'd become uh, what one writer I read called miracle mongers. They'd been down at Judea, in Judea with Jesus during the feast time. They'd seen him do these miracles. They were following Jesus because of the miracles he did. And so Jesus is condemning the Galileans for just being sign seekers. And again, this seems harsh, but Jesus is graciously drawing this man to a deeper level of faith. He doesn't want him just to trust in Jesus because he's a miracle worker. He wants the man to trust in the Lord himself. And Jesus says in verse 48, or the royal official says to him, uh, I'm sorry, verse 48, he said to them, unless you people see signs and wonders, you won't believe. So it's like we often say, seeing is believing. But that's backwards really in God's economy. We say seeing is believing. Jesus says here, believing is seeing. It's when we believe and we trust in Him that we see. So that's the crisis faith this man has that often draws people and brings them to the Lord. Now, the next stage of this man's faith is what we might call confident faith. I love this. You know, the guy doesn't get ticked off at Jesus because he says, you people are just seeking for signs. No, he accepts the invitation of Jesus that Jesus is drawing him out. And the royal official said to him, uh, sir, come down before my child dies. This man accepts the rebuke of Jesus, but he will not be deterred. I mean, this man is persistent in his faith, weak as it is, because Jesus is his only hope. And I love in verse 49, he doesn't say, refer to his son anymore. He says, sir, come down. And he calls him now, my child. It's a term of intimacy. Sir, come down before uh, my child dies. In other words, he's telling Jesus, look, time is of the essence. He's dying. Won't you help me? Won't you heal uh, my child? And Jesus looks this man in the eye. I would love to have been there to see what was going on between Jesus and this man. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. Jesus doesn't go with him the 18 miles back to Capernaum. Jesus just tells him, go your way, your son lives. And here's the staggering thing to me in verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And you think now, how in the world could he believe? I mean, it's 18 miles away, 1,700 feet below where Jesus is standing. And Jesus has spoken the word. And this man believes. Now, he's looking in the eyes of Jesus. There's something that's happening between them there. This man trusts in what Jesus says. And it says there, and he started off. Now, we're going to find out when it says he started off, it doesn't mean he started off back for home. You could translate that better. He just left. He departed from Jesus' presence. We're going to find out here he didn't actually leave till the next day. But there's a very important lesson for us here about faith. This is as simple as it gets, but uh, some of us may have forgotten this or may not have ever really grasped this fully. And that is, faith always involves the unseen. Faith always involves the unseen. If you can see it, it's not faith. I mean, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So if it's by sight, then it's not by faith. Faith always involves the unseen. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1 and 2 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
So faith always involves the unseen. This man, he can't see his son. He's 18 miles away. He's 700 feet down below where he's standing. But this man believes in the unseen because of uh, the word of Jesus. Now, verse 51, his confident faith, I think, takes another step and becomes what I like to call confirmed faith. Now, every one of us here, I think without exception, we would have hopped on the red-eye special to get back home as quickly as possible, right? Every one of us would. But not this nobleman. He waits until the next day to go home, and we know that because it says in verse 51, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. And he inquired of them the hour, and he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, what a difference it must have been between the poundless, uh, between the breathless pounding trip uh, to Cana and the leisurely ride back to Capernaum. Now, if he would have left that afternoon, he could have gotten home by the evening, but he stayed there till the next day. And, and what made the difference in this man was faith. Now, again, picture the scene. He, he's coming down the road there to Capernaum to his home. The crowds must have formed as they saw him coming down the road. He must have looked ahead and at his home and seen cheering and dancing and shouting and this boy there in the midst. And this father must have begun to weep with joy. And he, wants to, he begins to ask him, how did it happen? Tell me everything. Like, give me all the details of what has taken place. And they tell him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that will be one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Now, notice they don't say, one in the afternoon, he started slowly getting better. And, uh, you know, then after a little while, you know, it kind of, the fever went away. No, it says, at one in the afternoon, this fever that he had uh, that was draining his life away, it left him. In other words, he got better uh, all at once. And so and then it says, so the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed. You say, now wait a minute, back up in verse 50, it said he believed. He believed then in the word of Jesus, but I think now he's believed in the person of Jesus himself. It's saving faith and trust um, in the Lord Jesus. The final stage of this man's faith is what I like to call contagious faith. The very last words of verse 53, and his whole household. The whole household, all of them, the servants, everyone, uh, comes to faith in Jesus. Now think about this. This man came seeking physical healing for his son, but he got a lot more than he sought. Spiritual healing for himself and his entire household. In other words, they believe in Jesus. It becomes personal for them. Um, A.W. Pink, the old commentator, says it like this. A boy was brought to the point of death that a whole house might have eternal life. I like that. A boy was brought to the point of death that a whole house might have eternal life. God often allows the crises of life to do something greater than a physical healing, but to bring about the spiritual healing that we need uh, through faith in His Son. That's how God often works. He often brings about the greater miracle of salvation where people get a lot more than they asked for. And his faith here spread to his entire household. 
Mother's Day is next week, and I just want to ask you this question. Each one of you here that have children, maybe have grandchildren, this is one of the great questions of life. Do your children know the Lord? I've been staggered sometimes as I've met families that have children that are you know, 10, 12, 15 years of age, and I'll ask them about the spiritual condition of their children. Do your children know the Lord? And they're kind of like, well, I don't know. <laughs> I think, well, that ought to be the greatest concern in all of your life. That ought to eclipse your desire for anything else in life is the salvation of the soul of your child. And we can't save our children. Only God can do that. But we want to have a contagious faith, a, a faith where they see us believing in Jesus and what He's done for us, uh, that God can use as one of the means to bring them to faith in Himself. So it's a great question to ask ourselves, do we have a contagious faith in our family? And do we desire to see and yearn to see and pray to see and work to see the salvation um, of the souls of our children? This man's faith that starts in this crisis becomes a confident faith. It's confirmed. He believes in Jesus, and it becomes contagious as his whole household and his family believes. So this passage is about the growth of faith. And I want to close here just with a couple practical thoughts. How does faith grow in your heart and in my heart? One of, them is, one of the ways is by hearing the Word of God. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by uh, the Word of God or literally the Word of Christ. So it's just, as we hear the Word of God and we read the Word of God that God creates faith in our hearts. I mean, we see it right here. <coughs> this man believes... In verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. It's through God's word and hearing God's word that the Lord creates faith in our hearts. So spend time often in the Bible if you want your faith to, to, to be strengthened. You're not going to have a strengthened, growing faith without a regular exposure and a regular diet of God's word. Here's a second thing, and this is important. Exercise the faith that you have. Whatever faith you have, use it. Faith grows by exercise. Alexander McLaren, the great McLaren of Manchester, the great preacher, said this, The way to increase faith is to exercise faith. And the true parent of perfect faith is the experience of the blessings that come from the crudest, rudest, narrowest, blindest, feeblest faith that a man can exercise. Trust him as you can. Do not be afraid of inadequate conceptions or of a feeble grasp. Trust Him as you can, and He will give you so much more that you, than you expected that you will trust Him more. A lot of people just say, well, I don't have very much faith. Use the faith that you have, the feeblest grasp. And when you see what God gives you in response to that, then you'll learn to even trust Him more. It's like the old story about the man that's you know, out in, in the freezing cold weather, and he, he comes to a small lake, and it's frozen over, but he, he has no idea how thick the ice is. So he gets down on his knees and begins to, to crawl across this lake. And he gets about halfway out there, and he hears this loud roar behind him, and he turns around, and he sees an 18-wheeler coming behind him, and he comes and drives across this lake that he's crawling across on all fours. Obviously, he had no idea how thick the ice was, but I like that picture because... Uh, you, we, even if our faith is just a, a crawling out on our, our all fours on the ice, if you will, crawl out there and God will use that faith to answer prayer and to give us a greater faith and a trust in Him. Finally, one last thing would just be to pray. 
Have an active prayer life where you're asking God for the things that you need. All of the words in the, in the New Testament used for prayer all have the same basic meaning, and that is to ask God for something. And we go in faith asking God for what we need. And as we ask God for what we need, and as we see God graciously answer those prayers, or sometimes graciously not give us what we want, um, it builds our faith. It builds our faith to trust in Him. So I'd ask you this morning, it's a good question for all of us to think about, where are you in your faith this morning? Which one of these stages are you in? Maybe you're here this morning and it's a crisis in your life that has brought you to the place where you realize your need and you realize maybe for the first time the reality of Jesus Christ. Well, let me just say you've come to the right place and you've come to the right person But use that crisis in your life, that crisis faith, as a a launching pad. Don't stop there. Keep going and allow the Lord to continue to work in your life, to make your faith uh, stronger and stronger, and ultimately to lead you to trust in Jesus as your Savior. The passage we started in this morning, look at the the, uh, words up in verse 42. Back up in chapter uh, 4 and verse 42, notice what it says. For we believe and we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and He will become your Savior, your Savior, your personal Savior, if you will trust in Him, if you'll trust His Word, and you'll take Jesus to be your Savior from sin. And you can have a, a confirmed faith, and praise God, maybe we can have a contagious faith that reaches out to our families and those around us. There's a great old story. Many of you have heard about George Mueller, uh, the great man of faith. He had an incredible gift of faith. And I don't, I don't tell this story to, to kind of make you feel like you don't have much faith, but I tell this to encourage us to, to come up higher in our own trust of the Lord. Uh, George Mueller was, uh, was crossing uh, the Atlantic and he was going to uh, speak in Quebec, and they were off the coast of Newfoundland, and a, a heavy, dense fog settled in. And um, the captain of the ship was there. He was was exhausted from lack of sleep. And he he feels a tap on his shoulder. And he fumed and turned around face to face with an old man in his 70s. And it was George Mueller. And Mueller said, Captain, I've come to tell you. He says, I have to be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. And the captain pondered for a moment. And he snorted. He, He says, it's impossible. Very well, Mueller said, if your ship can't take me there, God will find another means to take me because I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. So a guy lifts his weary head and gesture, and he says, look, I'd help you if I could, but I'm helpless. Undaunted by this, Mueller says, let's go down right now, you and me, to the chart room, and let's pray. And the captain raised his eyebrows in disbelief, looking at the old man like he just escaped from an insane asylum. He says, do you know how dense this fog is? And Mueller said, no, he says, my eye is not on the thickness of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. Against his better judgment, the captain accompanied the old man to the chart room and kneels with him down there in prayer. With simple words, this man says, that a child might use. George Mueller simply said, oh, Lord, if it's consistent with your will, please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec on Saturday, and I believe it's your will for me to be there. 
The captain, who was a nominal Christian, thought it'd be wise to, to humor the old man and pray a short prayer of his own. But before he was able to utter a word, he felt a tap on his shoulder. Mueller said, don't pray because you don't believe. And I believe God has already answered, so there's no need for you to pray. And the captain's mouth literally dropped open. And Mueller explained, he said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to gain an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find that the fog is gone. The captain did as he was requested. He was astonished to find the fog had disappeared. The captain later testified this encounter with the aged George Mueller completely revolutionized his Christian life. He had seen with his own eyes that Mueller's God was the true and the living God of the Bible. He'd seen incredible power flow from a frail old man, a power rooted in simple childlike faith in God. That's the kind of faith I want to have. That's a confirmed faith. It's a contagious faith. I mean, look at what the faith did in the life of this captain. As we go about through our lives and the difficulties and the struggles and the trials of life, and we trust in God. Those words of that song we sang this morning, the last song, are kind of echo in my heart when he said with that, that last line, Oh, for grace to trust Him more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Savior of the world. Father, we thank You that He's our Savior through trust in Him. And I pray if there's anyone this morning who's never met Him, never come to personal faith in Jesus, they might trust Him now. Lord, for those of us who know You, You know how weak we are. You tell us in Your Word, You know our frame, You know we're dust. Father, thank You for working in our hearts and lives and, and building our faith through crises and troubles and answered prayer and all the things that You use in our lives. Father, I pray for, for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning that you will use and orchestrate the circumstances of all of our lives to build our faith and our trust in you so that we can please you, our great God. We ask these things in Jesus' name.